Greetings, big outs, and top teners everywhere. Welcome back to another edition of Top 10 with Kyle and Mike. I am your co-host, Kyle. Opposite me today, as he is every week, is your co-host, Michael. Michael looks very good. His uh, hair is freshly shampooed. Apparently, it tastes very good. His cat was just on his head prior to recording. He's also wearing a, a nice short sleeve button-up shirt, which appears to be adorned with headless herons. We can't decide. Anyways, he looks really good. He's, he looks to be in a good podcasting space. Now, Michael has brought for us a top 10 list of topic unknown. I have no idea what this top 10 list is, but Mike is going to relay it to us. Then we'll debate vigorously. And by the end of this hopefully compact episode, we will have arrived at a definitive version of that top 10 list. Michael, what are we discussing today? All right, Kyle. So this week we're going to be talking about... Uh... A, a little bit of an educational topic. So um, I think like a lot of the white folk out there, uh, you and I have been trying to think about sort of using our platform such as it is to talk about topics of importance. But what we're trying, I think, not to do is kind of force all of our non-white compadres to teach us stuff. So we're trying to do a little bit of self-education here. Um so I wanted to talk about a topic that I actually do know a little something about. Not a ton, but a little bit. Um, so I want to talk about economics. A little bit of some of those economic topics that get rolled into topics about racial and social justice. And not necessarily a racial or social justice bent on each of them, but a little bit of a conversation about what those, top, what those concepts are and how they affect people. Um, so if the listeners don't know... Uh, I am somewhat finance adjacent in my career, but, but more importantly, we are graced by a former finance guru in Kyle. Emeritus. Finance guru emeritus. (laughs) Special lecturer emeritus. (laughs) Um, So that's it. That's kind of the setup is, you know, there's 10, there's 10 different um, topics. We're going to talk about it and, and how, you know, kind of arm us so when we hear these things discussed in conversation and they are they have broad applications to sort of you know other sort of policy things but you hear a lot of these things talked about and i think it's important we really kind of dive in on them well i'm excited to be attacking this from this perspective i'm interested to see how you've done it and i hope that i can add to it intelligently Oh, you definitely can. And this is, I mean, this is kind of it. It's, it's, we all have, I think everybody, even, even if you're like, man, I wish, you know, I wish people would stop asking for this or people would stop advocating for that. Like, it is important that you educate yourself appropriately because if there's one thing that we've learned, it's that messaging and spin matter. And so kind of digging into facts is a helpful thing. Okay. Yeah, I'm into it. Okay. All right. So let's. So basically, I've broken it down into kind of three buckets a little bit. Um, so that first bucket is really broad, sort of definitional things. The second bucket is going to be sort of how these these policies uh, or how these topics kind of get enacted in policy form and how that affects people. And then the last is just sort of a couple more, um, you know, kind of smaller picture applications of these things. So. Let's do it. So number 10 is the concept of Keynesian economics. So I'm guessing that a lot of our listeners have heard of the economist John Maynard Keynes. So he was, uh, and, and I want to just be clear. 
so people don't think I'm too cool. I did used to think it was pronounced Keynesian because it looks like it would be pronounced Keynesian. And it does. Until you, yeah, until you actually talk to somebody who's smarter than you and is like, ooh, Keynesian economics, you don't know that it's pronounced that way. So welcome to the club. It's Keynesian, not Keynesian. Um, so Keynes was an economist who advocated for more robust intervention by governments uh, and central banks in fiscal and monetary policy. So fiscal policy is the concept of a government's actual direct spending. So, you know, do they pay for roads? Do they pay for bridges? Do they pay for social programs? So that's fiscal policy. Monetary policy is under the assumption that a central bank is in charge of the supply of a currency, that they do things to increase or decrease the supply of that currency. So basically, Keynes' idea was in contrast to classical economics. So classical economics, which is like the Adam Smith kind of types, is basically that we live in this perfect jungle of supply and demand, where when supply goes up, prices go down, demand goes up, prices go up, and everything just kind of works to balance itself out. It's almost like there's some kind of invisible appendage kind of guiding these things. One might say that. <laughs> so... So basically, Keynes's idea is that um, that's not really true. And that's not practically speaking how the world works. And there's lag in how sort of these things come through the system. And so he had a really big impact kind of around the time of the Great Depression, as central governments were figuring out how to get through that. And so the net effect of that is that in today's world, when there are economic, you know, kind of contractions, recessions, when there are economic booms, the governments of the world are typically intervening to control that. They try to keep depressions from going, recessions and depressions from going too deep. They try to get expansions to, you know, kind of be a little cooler. They try to keep everything in the middle. They try to control inflation. So a couple of things that have happened there uh, and a couple of things that I think are important for application in this discussion. One is after the Great Recession in 2008, central banks were really aggressive in lowering interest rates um, kind of through various mechanisms. What's really important about the lowering of interest rates as a way to kind of get economies going again, a really simple way to think about this is if you take out a loan at a lower interest rate, you're able to buy more stuff. And so when the lower interest rates kind of make their way through the system, actual assets that people own across the board become more valuable. So people who own things end up benefiting really a lot from lower interest rates. People who don't own things don't benefit as much. This, yeah, this has to, oh, uh, this it feels very closely tied to, maybe this is further up your list, but like this was like a really new concept to me when I read this really great book called The Color of Law, um, like the wealth gap, which is like very, very different from just like an income gap. Absolutely. So that's number seven. So let's okay. let's hold off on yeah. that discussion because I. Th but that's but that's where I'm going. That's yeah. where we're gonna go with that topic. So that's one effect of Keynes's thinking is that you know kind of worldwide control of interest rates, which I, this is not a cr criticism of that because that is one of the tools that got the world out of the Great Recession. But it does have a secondary impact of inflating asset values without necessarily changing kind of other economic behavior. 
that's one important thing. The other thing that I think is incredibly important is that Keynes's way of thinking, and this is this is more of a, I think something that's just a truism, is that changes to economic policy, changes to any sort of policy don't work their way through the system kind of uniformly and holistically. And so I think thinking about the world in terms of frictions, um, he'll talk about stickiness. So like people, people anchor, and this is something people talk about in cognitive biases, people anchor to certain things, people anchor to their nominal wage. If I make 10 bucks an hour, I'm not going to take nine bucks an hour, even if taking nine bucks an hour means that all the other prices go down or all the prices go down at the same time. And my nine bucks actually goes farther. And that, that tends to work in both directions with a lot of things. But the point is, when we talk about all of these sort of economic policies, Keynes's way of looking at the world, that things don't work their way through the system uniformly and perfectly, is, is very true and really important. It also feels like that concept does not, like, while delivered simply here, like the actual mechanisms by which you control those kinds of things, I think sometimes like rub people the wrong way or like, you know what I mean? Like, I think in theory, like most people would agree with that, but like the, the ways that they're practically implemented to kind of even the scales or like, maybe that's not even the right terminology, but like those kinds of things are not always received in that light. Totally. And we're going to talk about a couple of specific yeah. examples a little farther up of sort of policies that don't necessarily acknowledge this reality, but that do kind of have important differential impacts. And it's not necessarily breaking upon racial lines, um, though I think, you know, punchline, if there's one kind of set of people who tend to benefit disproportionately from economic policies, it's the whiteies. So there's no... That part is, is you know, we can take that as sort of for granted. But even that, there's disparate impacts of working class white people, um, sort of, you know, private sector office job white people, government employed white people, blah, 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 on down the list. Those impacts are very differential. And so it, it kind of flies in the face of um, simple slogans, which are attractive in part because they don't require five minutes to talk about like we just did. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. So that's, that's number 10. And I think it's, I I think the reason I put it at number 10 is because I think it's important framing for all of this. um, That uncertainty is a really important part of any of these discussions. So number nine is a topic that I'm going to give a term for, but what you already know all about. So number nine is the Laffer curve. That's spelled L-A-F-F-E-R. So not L-A-U-G-H-E-R. Um, it would be more fun if it were. It's like the Joker's theorem on economics. I'm just laughing because uh, wow. this is one. Oh, yeah. L-A-F-F-I-N-G. Because this is one of the things <laughs> that uh, Ben Stein is talking about in Ferris Bueller. He goes, yes, he the, is. The what curve? Anyone? Anyone? The Laffer curve, which says... At this point on the curve, <laughs> the well, but that's so, okay. So you yeah. you know about it, and, and yeah. I think all of us do because we've heard various politicians advocate for sort of one or another way of interpreting this. Yeah. So the Laffer curve, importantly, is a framework of thinking rather than sort of a prescription for how to implement policy. So the Laffer curve says that 
on an imaginary graph of a tax rate and tax revenue, there is a point at which tax revenue is maximized. So, listener, Mike is making basically like an X with his arms. So, like, this is like, I, I think probably like similar to looking at like a supply versus demand chart where you have an intersection point that is... Exactly. So, yeah. so the intuition here, there's kind of two intuitions. One is that except for people who basically just think, you know, government should get the hell out of here, which, you know, that's a different way of thinking about things. I think most people sort of living in the American system agree that the government is necessary to collect and sort of determine how to spend taxes. Now, the degree to which we think that is differs and should it be state, local, federal, you know, we can talk about that. But the basic point is, you know, the government is the mechanism by which taxes get collected and then they get allocated into the budget. And so that's one intuition is that, you know, we want to maximize the amount of tax revenue that the government takes in. That's one thing that we would, we, I think most people would agree on. The question is that second part is how to make that happen. So what the Laffer curve is really saying is if you raise taxes to 100%, right? If you raise taxes to 100%, you will have no tax revenue because nobody would work. If tax revenue were 100%, nobody would work because they would say, why work? My taxes are going to take away all my money. On the other end of the spectrum, if you have a 0% tax rate, tax revenues are also zero because everybody keeps all their money, so there is no tax money. Somewhere in the middle, at some imaginary rate that nobody knows, people say, I'm working and I'm giving up this amount of taxes, so I'm, I'm maximum incentivized to pay taxes and work really hard on my... And, and that's the amount of tax that can get taken out of my paycheck before I start wanting to work less and people start investing less. Yeah, the problem is that's a moving target. And it depends it's on that, So yeah. that is exactly the problem. People, <laughs> people totally disagree on this. So what people would say, you know, if you have, you know, let's just, I'm going to use Democrat and Republican because that's an easy kind of framework in the U.S. So what a typical sort of fiscal conservative... I guess maybe I can use those terms. So what a fiscal conservative would tell you uh, or an economic conservative would tell you is a lower tax rate, all else equal, will maximize tax revenue because people will be incentivized to invest in their businesses. They'll be incentivized to pay people more. And so you'll have more tax revenue because people will make more money. What a more liberal uh, economist would say is it's sort of the other way around. That really businesses and will continue to invest, people will continue to spend even up to a pretty high tax rate. And so, hey, just take more of the pie. This is the conundrum. And this is like one of the central conundrums of modern life. And spoiler alert, uh, the M in top 10 KM is not going to solve this for us. But it's it's really <laughs> Nor is the K. Yeah, not today. Um but it's really important to think about because this governs basically every decision that the federal government makes is exactly this concept. Because in government, everybody in government agrees that the government needs to be the ones collecting and spending tax revenue. That is not a subject of any real disagreement. And everybody agrees, again, kind of within reason, that the government should have as much of that as possible. 
Some people say they should have more because everybody's prospering so much and they're just shelling out a little bit of their taxes. Some say it's the other way. But we kind of all agree on those concepts. But the way that the, the these things get pitched to us depend on somebody's interpretation of that perfect point. Well, yeah. And the, the, I think, like, on top of that, like, that point changes based on your own income, which is, like, how we come up with tax brackets and, like, all of that nonsense, mm-hmm. which, like, are not nonsense, but, like, all of that bag of worms it's a really it's a really complicated topic but i think it's important that you sort of think about for yourself and try to educate yourself on sort of what the evidence says um and the evidence is incredibly complicated i'm not going to really quote it because it's so all over the map and depends on sort of the typically the political bent of the think tank that's published this um but, you know, do your own research, kind of think about this topic a little bit, because I can promise you at whatever kind of level, this is a concept that has been pitched to you. You just yeah. maybe didn't know it. Yeah, just rewatch Ferris Bueller at the very least. Yeah, Ben Stein. He was a, I believe he was a swinger back in the day. I buy that for sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Bone me. Bone me. Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> anyone? Literally anyone? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. All right. So next concept I'm going to talk about. Um, but so I'm looking at this book that I read, which was okay. Um, it was. It, it's funny to talk about this in a podcast of, of this nature, but it, it was too bent in the direction of sort of Marxist economics to to really work. I didn't buy a lot of what this book was saying. But it's called uh, "How to Kill a City" by P.E. Moskowitz. And it's basically talking about how, um, you know, zoning policies and housing policies impact the way our cities kind of uh, develop. And I know, Kyle, you read, was it The Color of Law was the one that talked an awful lot about this? Yeah. So it's a topic a lot of people have been educating themselves on. So for this one, I'm not going to advocate because it's not really the kind of uh, thing that's like prescriptive of, of policy. It's a little bit like the Laffer Curve where it's a way of thinking about things. This concept is uh, that of exchange value versus use value. So basically think of it like sentimental value is kind of a, a, a quick way to think about this. So I'm going to read from the passage in the book. So under capitalism, there's an inherent tension between what Marxist academics called call use value and exchange value. Use value means the value a place is given by being useful to people because it houses them, because it gives them a sense of community a place where they can work, a sense of identity. Exchange value is a place's potential economic worth. In a society in which land can be bought and sold, every place has both a use value and an exchange value. The inherent problem with this setup is that the poorer you are, the more likely it is that places that provide you with use value don't offer an an increased exchange value for anyone else. So if you think about like, investing in a community park so a park can have extreme exchange value if the city that owns that park decided to sell it rather than to develop it but it has a particular use value to the community that that uses it now a per what you could say and this is a perfectly rational argument is okay if the local government owns that land they should sell that land and then use the proceeds to maximize other programs that have similar or greater use value to the local folks. So that's, this is again, this is not a prescriptive one. This is more of a way of thinking about 
like making sure that you frame economic decisions in terms of both of those things. Typically, when we think about economics, we think about dollars and cents. And I think for the most part, our default is to evaluate things based on their exchange value. And so like being aware of the use value of a certain asset, like, and I think probably you're right, like the easiest example to think about is land is something that you have to take into account, but it's <laughs> super difficult because like you said, like, how do you quantify the value of a park on a community? Like, it's really not, it's, I'm sure there are ways to do it, but I mean, but if they're like entirely indirect, like you can look at like communities with parks, you know, crime statistics or like other, like you can look at indirect metrics that kind of can show like what a park that keep going back to this park example are indicators for, but you can't measure it directly the way you can measure the part, like the literally the value of the parcel of land. And what is the value of a grandparent and a grandchild going to hang out at that park? And, hey, maybe that kid ends up doing X, Y, or Z because of that. And, you know, what is the, what is the relative value of moving that park somewhere else? And, okay, there is still a park, but the park is somewhere else. What yeah. is the economic well, – what is the exchange value versus the use value of a human life? There is a dollar value placed on those things in actuarial tables – but is that a value we genuinely all agree on? Um, and and it, the answer is no. <laughs> well, look at the look at the current pandemic. Like that's something that we just like absolutely are entirely different pages on. And, and this is exactly why this concept is important. Is this is precisely the conversation we're having? Because I, I and I think this is it, it makes it a little tough because I think depending on which side of this sort of discussion you land on. If you're a pure use value person or you're a pure exchange value person, your argument basically boxes out the other person's argument. Because if I'm an exchange value person, I say, hey, I've got dollars and cents I can put on these things. I win. If I'm a use value person, I say, the whole construct with which you're discussing this is pointless. I win. And <laughs> so really, either either extreme is not is not an appropriate way to think about things, In at least in my view, is you have to sort of try your best to balance both of those things. Love it. Yeah. So that's an important one. So no, there's no honorable mentions. I've just got 10. Um, so number seven is uh, the concept of wealth versus income. So this is precisely what you were talking about, Kyle. So I've got some research from um, Pew. So the well-known kind of uh, polling and research group. Pew, pew, um, pew. Yeah just nonpartisan. This is just a kind of a research group. So they had some interesting statistics. I, I want to point out, you know, apples to apples, sort of wealth income things over time. They're hard to come by and plenty of people have weird ways of quoting it. Like what is the top 1% make or own what five top quintile, top quartile, top hat. There's, there's a lot of different ways you can kind of slice this. Um, but the basic point here is that wealth and income are very different things. And while income inequality is discussed pretty frequently, um, in reality, wealth inequality is kind of the more important thing to be talking about because income is, is not the sort of thing that is always steady and repeatable and kind of income does not beget income exactly, but wealth does beget wealth. And so discussing wealth inequality is is a more accurate way to think about this conversation yeah well like income 
income is not like a compounding effect. I think is another Correct. way to say it. Like wealth, yep. wealth compounds. Like if, if you think about it from like a very basic standpoint, like if your grandparents owned a house, they bought a house in the 40s or 50s, like that that home or like the wealth associated with that home has stayed in your family until now in some way or another. Whereas a family that was unable to purchase a home at that time <laughs> is not having that wealth accumulate over time through multiple generations of family. Um, and hold over- up, hold on, hold on to your housing thought just for a minute, because yeah. that's our next, we're going to talk okay. about that. We're going to talk about how this applies to that conversation next. Okay. Cause Sorry. that I think is no, but that's, but that's like, that's the punchline of this discussion is how important housing is. This but like the but you're right to like introduce this concept beforehand because this is the concept that like even me like a finance guru like I had all mm-hmm. the pieces to understand this disparity and yet it was never laid out in front of me as a disparity and once yep. you realize what the difference is and like what the implications are it's kind of it's kind of shocking and I think I you could probably do a better job of like explaining it in broader terms than I did like can you explain like what the reasons are that wealth over time like compounds versus income doesn't? Yep. So, so I want to give you a statistic first and then we'll talk about that. So um, the income inequality thing, like I said, I'm actually not going to even talk about income inequality because it just, the apples and oranges are a little tough to get at, but let me uh, kind of summarize the, the research there by saying that, Income inequality is significant and increasing. We'll take that as kind of gospel. It is. Mm -hmm. Um, But wealth inequality is much more significant and it's accelerating at a more rapid pace. So this statistic I got from Pew. In 1989, the richest 5% of families, so this is in the United States, had 114 times as much wealth as families in the second quartile. So that's families from the 60, or I'm sorry, the uh, quintile, second quintile. So this is families from basically 61 to 80th percentile. So like on the low end or however you want to kind of conceive of this. This is basically the second worst off quintile. The richest 5% had 114 times as much wealth as that. With a median of two point three million dollars compared with twenty thousand three hundred dollars, that's nineteen eighty nine. Twenty sixteen, that number was two hundred and forty eight times. So it went from one hundred and fourteen times as much wealth of that kind of top five percent versus the that like what they're using as sort of a proxy for the middle class. Yeah, to two hundred and forty eight times. So that's more than doubling in a span and of what this is. Uh, from 1989 to 2016. So what is that? 27 years. Okay. And <laughs> this is the this is the other thing that I think th- this isn't even really explored in this. The reason that they're comparing that top five percent versus that second worst off quintile is because the worst off quintile has negative wealth in almost all years. So you can't actually even compare those numbers because you would get. An, you know a, a, a fake number divide by zero would, yeah right would come out of that that's stunning and um i think that I, we should just like officially recommend this book because i'm just going to keep referencing yeah. it it's called the color of law by richard rothstein it's 
brilliant. And it like basically details all the stuff we've been talking about or a lot of it. And he was saying similarly, like along the same lines, what's interesting is that it's actually really difficult to move between these quintiles that you're talking about. And like, it's easier to move from like the third quintile to the fourth or from the fourth to the fifth and stay there than it is to move from like the first to the second or the second to the third. So yeah. like there's this compounding like effect of wealth accumulation that makes it easier to increase like your your overall wealth, which is interesting. Yeah. And and your so to come back to your what you were saying is kind of thinking about this in terms of um, why this compounding effect exists. So I I gotta remember I think it's it's called the rule of yeah it's called the rule of seventy two. So this is a good way of thinking about how long it takes for something to double in value. So what you basically do is you take 72 divided by, in percent terms, the rate of return you're expecting, and that's how long it takes for that thing to double in value. So if you expect a 9% rate of return, you would expect that thing to double in eight years. Okay, so that's sort of the way you think about it. Now, that's that's kind of roughly, that's like a ballpark uh estimate of the long-term rate of return on the S&P 500. It's, it's, I think it's more like seven and eight, whatever, but it's less than 10 years is how long you would expect it to take for an investment in the stock market to double over time. Now, if you don't own anything in the stock market, that is not going to happen. That is not a reality for you. But if you have disposable wealth that you can place into the stock market without, and this is, to be clear, this is not incumbent upon you to express any sort of skill. This is, you You give this to somebody else to do, you would expect that money to double in less than 10 years. That is incredibly powerful. And it's a similar mechanism um, in the housing market. Now, over time, um, sort of the rate of return on housing, I, I if I'm remembering this right, tends to lag the rate of inflation. But that is an overall rate and not a rate specific to different communities. Now, when you look at sort of the disparate outcomes of different communities and how their housing values increase, this gives you an idea of of how this works. Like, just think about, you know, my grandparents talking about buying their house for whatever, $10,000, $20,000. That means that, you know, kind of in my area, there are not houses really that are less than $350,000, maybe $350,000 is kind of the low end of what you could buy anywhere in, in sort of the greater Boston area. Three fifty dollars versus people kind of conceivably, like really reasonably paying $10,000 40, 50 years ago. Well, and I think importantly, like in that example, like wealth is generational. So like you're... So like that, that value can be passed on, whereas like your income can't. So like that's for like those reasons, like literally what you're talking about, like your investments compound over the short term, but it compounds over like the span of longer yes. term because it's passed on. So, exactly. Yeah. So let's move on then to number yeah. six. So number six is just a little bit of talk about mortgage math. Um, so basically the point here is when I buy uh toaster when i buy a you know piece of bread when i go out to a restaurant i can use a credit card sure 
the 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 term on which I have to pay that credit card back is you know it's thirty days. I got to pay next month. So yes, I'm technically you know buying that with a loan, but my ability to sort of take a dollar worth of credit and turn it into something more than a dollar it doesn't really exist because realistically I'm not investing that money you know in something over that time. When you buy a house, that is very very much not the case. So. If you buy a house, you would typically put down, uh, if you want to avoid any sort of um, insurance penalties or anything like that, you would typically put down a 20% down payment. So just thinking about that very simply, that means you can buy something that is worth five times what you paid for it. Now, there's plenty of reasons why you know you have to sell it then and you have to pay back the mortgage, but your ability to expose yourself to the returns on something that's worth five times more than what you can directly buy has an incredible effect on your wealth. So let's just say, for example, you buy a house that's worth $500,000. You would have to put down $100,000. Now, that's not totally true because you can actually put down quite a bit less than that. You could put down something as low as like 5%. You'd have to pay some penalties, but let's just pretend you put down 20. You buy that house for $100,000. It is very conceivable that the value of that house could go up by $100,000 over a very short period of time. $100,000 on $500,000 is 20%, but $100,000 on an investment of $100,000 is 100%. It means that if that house goes up by $100,000 tomorrow, now it wouldn't, but let's just say it goes up that, it means you doubled your money overnight. But let's say it takes five years two years, 10 years, you've doubled your money. And in fact, you've doubled it a little bit more. Yes, you've had to pay out you know, your payment, but you've started to pay off that mortgage. That has an incredible effect on your ability to increase your wealth. The fact that you have access to leveraging your money that way. So a survey of consumer finances, which I believe is now I got to look to see who did this one. Uh, so I want to make sure I'm getting this right. Um, and now I lost that. I don't know. But the, but it's I, I did research on the sources. The Survey of Consumer Finances is a reputable source. Homeowners in the United States are worth an average of $230,000. Renters are on average worth $5,000. This other, so that's, so that's one thing. So if you're a homeowner, you are on average worth quite a bit more than a renter. Now here's the other thing. Middle and lower income families. So this is, they are, they derive 45% of their net worth from equity in their homes. Families with more income, their homes, businesses, and their stocks only make up about 20 to 25% of their total net worth. Because what has happened is you've gone from being a lower to middle class person whose wealth is composed of your home, and then you've been able to transition to buying other things that are equally as valuable or more valuable to you. Because you have the disposable income to do so. Because of because the home of, you own. Yeah, exactly. So that's so this is sort of the story of how wealth is created. Um, and now I want to read just a brief passage from um, this is from the History Channel. 
so the History Channel did uh, a, a little post on the effect of the GI Bill. So this is a topic, I have to admit, I've had a little bit of a bug up my butt about this topic for a long time, because um, the GI Bill basically was a set of policies that were put in place uh, around the time of World War II to help veterans reintegrate into society. Um, and one of the most important things that the GI Bill did was offer access to mortgages at basically 0% interest to veterans. Going back to this conversation about the impact of wealth, uh, of home ownership on wealth creation, there is almost nothing more powerful you could do for a person than to offer them the opportunity for a 0% loan on a home. You, you pay your, let's say, $100,000. There is no interest on that loan. All you do is over time make installment payments on that home. And you have access to all of the wealth that comes with that. That is massively powerful. And in the post-war boom after World War II, when housing prices just went up, 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 that has an incredible effect. Now, uh, black veterans, there were, I think here, 1.2 million black veterans of World War II were in a variety of ways cut out of this. So, um, this, so from the, I'm going to just read from this passage. So from the start, black veterans had trouble securing the GI bills benefits. Some could not access benefits because they had not been given an honorable discharge and a much larger number of black veterans were discharged dishonorably than their white counterparts. Veterans who did qualify could not find facilities that delivered on the bill's promise. Black veterans in a vocational training program at a segregated high school in Indianapolis were unable to participate in activities related to plumbing, electricity, and printing because adequate equipment was only available to white students. Simple intimidation kept others from enjoying GI Bill benefits. In 1947, for example, a crowd hurled rocks at black veterans as they moved into a Chicago housing development. Thousands of black veterans were attacked in the years following World War II, and some were singled out and lynched. So this is all. This is referencing a guy. Um, a, I think it's a senator, John Rankin. I want to say. Uh, I don't know where this is, but uh, Rankin. Just this next part is going to reference a guy named Rankin. Though Rankin had lost the battle to exclude black men from VA unemployment insurance, it was doled out inequitably. Men who applied for unemployment benefits were kicked out of the program if any other work was available to them, even work that provided less than subsistence wages. Southern postmasters were even accused of refusing to deliver the forms black veterans needed to fill out to receive their unemployment benefits. And on and on and on and on and on it goes. The point is, much of the wealth in today's society, in an American society, was created in the post-war boom. And a great deal of that was as a result of veterans uh, who received the benefits of the GI Bill. White veterans received it. As at large, black veterans did not. Yeah, and that's, like, the GI Bill is is one example of a way that, like, a leg up was given to, like, certain subsets of our people that others were eligible for but there's all sorts of other stuff like um like on top of that like in order to get a mortgage approved like the the properties had to be like evaluated and cleared for these kinds of loans and oftentimes they would be classified as not worthy of loans based on the kinds of people that lived there which is a practice 
that still goes on today called redlining. You've probably heard of. I don't want to step on if that's something we're going to talk no, about. No, no, like, we're not talking about redlining, so please. So that's that's another way that it was done. Like, okay, sure, you can be approved for a loan. Maybe you're technically eligible for it. Um, but any of the, the places where you might be interested in buying aren't because of the people that... Because ba- basically because if a, an area was highly, like, densely populated with black people, like the Federal Housing Administration wouldn't approve those properties for loans because based on the idea that, like, those, um, they didn't want to issue loans for properties whose property values weren't likely to increase. And And let's go back to a conversation we had earlier about use value versus exchange value. Right. This brings up, this brings up, so let's assume that those people in the FHA who were uh, responsible for evaluating those properties you know, whether they are worthy of a loan, let's just assume that they did not have some sort of inherent issue with black people. They had issues with black neighborhoods. Just yeah. assume that for a second. So let's say black family has the option then to move out to the white suburbs, and then they'll be approved for this loan that could set their family on this course. What is the use value versus the exchange value of that opportunity to move out to a place where you're isolated from a community that you're used to, where there aren't you know, facilities of people that will accommodate you where you feel lonely or, and intimidated. Or it's, or it's actively dangerous. <laughs> like, right. Right. There's uh, a massive mismatch between the way houses are evaluated in that sense. And that had a huge impact on setting certain people on a course for success and certain people on a course for failure. Well, that, and if you really want to get into it, uh, like zoning has a huge part to do with this too, because oftentimes the value, like the areas um, where like a lot of these administrations were like, were forced to provide like segregated housing, but they would put the like black housing in areas that were zoned like for industrial and stuff. And so like, even if you were able to secure a loan, your property values were less likely to increase because they were like, very likely in, in an area that's less desirable to, you know, for land to increase in value. Unless we think this is a history lesson, the Republican National Convention was just the other day, and one of the rallying cries of the Trump administration in their their quest for re-election is that Joe Biden would take the suburbs away from you. Now, take the suburbs away from you is code. Uh, It's not particularly clever code, but it means white people will have black people in their neighborhoods. And the point here is, this is in specific reference to, um, you know, laws about zoning and zoning kind of for single family versus multifamily housing versus uh, industrial. It's, it's basically how different areas are zoned. And historically, suburbs have um, been heavily zoned for single family housing and allowing for different sorts of zoning in those neighborhoods would bring people with lower income into those neighborhoods. And this is a fight that's still being fought. Very much. The housing bubble, if you if you look into it, like, in 2008, like, that was based largely on predatory lending, which disproportionately affected people of color. Like, this isn't, like, I think that's the biggest thing about reading all, all these kinds of things is, like, we have this weird impression. My friend Brian made a good point. Like, it's not a weird impression. It's something that we're taught that this happened in the 40s and 50s and 60s, and it's all shot in black and white, and it feels like the past when it's very much not. No. One thing I do, and, and this is before we move on to the next topic, I think one thing I really take issue with 
is people who would dismiss any sort of change as a wholesale reconsideration of things that like changing sort of policies to make redlining more difficult and make sort of, you know, predatory lending practices more difficult. That doesn't mean the overthrow of the capitalist system. That's not even you don't have to advocate anything close to that to believe that that kind of thing is unacceptable. There are plenty of things that can be done without changing America, changing our capitalist system. Like, that's just a common sense bit of reform that can be done very easily that doesn't require anyone's pot to get smaller. Well, depending on your perspective, like, it's an ardent defense of capitalism because it's... Exactly. It's, it's allowing for, like, this free market system where, you know, like... <laughs> oh, you, Kyle, you just... Tri- Perfect. This is like a perfect transition. So let's go to number five. Number five is tariffs. So I want to talk about tariffs because an ardent defense of free, of free market kind of enterprise um, is typical of sort of, you know, American conservatism. And tariffs run precisely counter to free market enterprise because tariffs, for those who don't know, is basically a way of raising the cost for foreign economies to export into your country. The theory behind this is that if you make it more expensive for those uh, folks to send their goods here, then we would, there's an advantage to the things that are manufactured here. That's the theory. The practice is that that gets passed on to consumers in your country. So I'll just read a quick passage from an article in Reuters So this is um, called who, I think it's called who pays the bill. This is from a congressional research report. So this is talking specifically about washing machines. So you may recall there was this big tiff with China um, where the Trump administration put tariffs on washing machines. China. Yeah. A congressional research service report in February. So this is February, I think of 2019, uh, found that the tariffs boosted washing machine prices for American consumers, just to be clear, by as much as 12% compared to January 2018 before tariffs took effect. So the point here is free market enterprise um, is being applied unequally uh, in ways that benefit certain groups over others. So the point of tariffs, as implemented by the Trump administration, is to secure support from a base of manufacturers who used to have sort of well-paid manufacturing jobs. The translation of that is white working class because the white working class has historically been supported by good manufacturing jobs um, in sort of the industrial heartland of the United States. Those have gone away. You know that more than most. You live, you grew up in the Detroit area. Those jobs are incredibly important. But those jobs are subject to forces that are well beyond the control of the U.S. government. The world has changed. Those are difficult things to control. Cars manufactured in China are cheaper. That is an, inexec- an inexorable fact of modern life, and it's hard to reverse that. The effect of tariffs, what this actually does, is it raises the price of consumer goods for American consumers. But... It increases the wages and the job stability of a certain subset of the American population. Again, the white working class specifically. So what this really is, is sort of a subsidy or a form of government assistance for manufacturing labor in the United States. Again, not necessarily wrong. 
I don't necessarily take issue with this concept, but it's a question of labeling. Yeah. Well, and I think an important, an important distinction to make that I learned about reading a book called uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Have you read that mm-hmm. one? I have not. So an interesting, just because I want to make sure that we define our terminology before we start using <laughs> these words. So like the way that racist is defined is any policy or program that has like differing effects based on like that affects like a certain subset that is like definable by race. And it's not like, like the term has become super weaponized, but it's not necessarily like inherently a bad word. But like you were saying, like a policy that by all accounts is completely colorblind, like it's a tariff on, it's a tariff, like it's not targeted at any group, but yeah, it's, it's, a t- it's targeting washing machines and right, the Chinese government. Exactly. But if the effect of that policy is one that affects a certain subset differently than another subset, then inherently it is a racist policy. And like, so when you say that something is a racist policy, like your inclination is to say like, that's like a really horrible, like bad thing to say. And I think his whole point in this book is to say that like, it's not supposed to be vilifying. It's just stating a fact. If you look at it, they affect different subsets differently. And so I think that, like what you're saying is the end result of a tariff. Like you can label something like a tariff as racist without being like, I think the term that gets used a lot is like, you're not playing the race card by saying it's a racist policy. You're just trying to understand its long-term effects on different subsets. Exactly. And and like I said, I don't, I'm not actually going to claim a particular position on this because, um, I don't really have a view. I do think manufacturing jobs are really important in the United States. And there are plenty of other fields in which the government provides needed assistance, um, like farmers. Farmers are the recipients of massive government assistance. Government programs to support various groups are really important. We are all the recipients of of what I'm terming as racist policies. We're all benefits of the interstate highway system and public yep. transit and like yep. like any form of public you know, ser- service is exactly what you're saying. And I'm not make- taking a stance on tariffs specifically right. either. Exactly. So, I, so you know, it's an interesting question of kind of whether those are have the net effect of, you know, sort of good, good or bad over time. Um, but what they do have the impact of doing is raising the prices for all of us, but having a positive effect on a specific subset of folks. So that's tariffs. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about is, uh, and this was a big thing for anything to talk about housing, is taxes on corporations and tax breaks specifically for big corporations. So I want to talk about Amazon. So the HQ2 thing, you may recall, was this big kind of quest um, for all of these different cities to get the next Amazon headquarters. So the theory behind offering tax breaks to big companies to lure them into your cities and neighborhoods is that you say, okay, we give up X number of dollars in taxes now, but they're going to bring a lot of great jobs to the area. They're going to promise to hire local people. Money will be fed into the local economy in the form of taxes and consumption over time. That's the theory. Two things I want to mention. Uh, One is the reality, and two is the scale of this. So this is uh, based on a study from Columbia Business School. So it's one study, and I think this is a probably more of an ongoing question because this kind of thing is is relatively new on the scale it's at. 
Um, but it's a, this is to quote a recent study by Columbia Business School business professor Kaylin uh, Slattery and Princeton economist Owen Zadar found that state and local governments pay out an average of $119,000 in tax incentives for every job created. So the intuitive interpretation of that is that if you're, you know, for every job, $119,000 is basically given up. You have to assume then that that job has to over time produce at least $119,000 in future taxes and consumption. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. That's a steep, steep price. And just I'm going to go through uh, this is from Market Watch. So Market Watch is, um, you know, it's kind of a business publication. So this is some of the biggest um, tax sort of incentive programs that have been paid out to big corporations. So Boeing got eight point seven billion from Washington in 2013. Alcoa got five point six billion from New York in 2007. Foxconn, that was the one that made the news recently, um, got $4.8 billion in Wisconsin in 2017. Boeing, another $3.3 billion in uh, Washington in 2013. But, you know, on down the line. Another sort of more pop culture version of this is stadiums. So as you know better than most, um, sports stadiums typically do not get paid out of the owner's pocket. They are almost always... Um, sort of subsidized by local governments directly or indirectly, um, either in terms of some sort of partnership or in terms of major tax breaks and tax incentives. Um, I think that example is a less politicized example that I think people are more willing to admit doesn't work. <laughs> um, I think people are much less willing to admit that this is challenged and faces a really high bar for corporations like Alcoa and Boeing and Foxconn because they do bring a lot of manufacturing and kind of, you know, in some cases for tech work, you know, highly skilled work. But using the stadium example, I think most folks agree that this is very challenging to get that money back. <laughs> like impossible. Like if you think about like the nuts and bolts of where that return comes from, basically like the only argument you can make, I, I think, unless you, you think about it differently, is that like drawing patronage to an event increases spending in local businesses like in the area of that stadium which means that like that's and i think that's like unquestionably true like bars restaurants mm -hmm. parking like around the stadium like certainly take advantage of that but the vast 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 majority of the income that's coming as a result of the stadium is going directly into the owner's pockets via game day related revenue Exactly. And then think about how much money is going to those bars. Right. And which bars get to move near the stadium. Who knows that going into this, you know, when the grant is made, who got the heads up? And what about homes that are in the area? Does this increase home values or does it decrease home values? Where does the stadium go? Who decides where the stadium goes? Well, and what does it displace? Like, you know... Yep. And this, it goes back to what you were saying before, like the people that are set to benefit the most from this are people that already have a stake in the game and some kind of wealth accumulation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is this is a big topic um, and it's it's an interesting one because, again, it's not I don't um, as somebody who does believe in the power of enterprise, I don't think it's obvious that this doesn't work from a dollars and cents point of view. Because, you know, it, it definitely can. It's a high bar to clear. The point of quoting the Columbia study is that the, the dollars and cents bar is very high to clear. 
The other question, though, that I think is equally important is this use versus exchange value question is who's deciding what goes where, what sorts of jobs are being created, and who are the folks who are actually benefiting from it? Yeah, I, I think it's less a question of whether or not like your return equals that investment and more about what, what return there is, like who's benefiting from it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's uh, the Amazon taxes uh, kind of question. The next thing I wanted to just talk about is the federal budget. I want to talk about um, the line items for the 20, I think it's the 2021 federal budget, which has been approved. So I'm cheating and I'm using uh, an explainer site called The Balance, but this is all taken directly from the actual budget itself. So here are the line items because I think these are really interesting. So in terms of revenue, the government estimates that it will receive $3.863 trillion in revenue in fiscal year 2021. So we're going to talk about revenue and expenses, and there's the expenditures break into mandatory and discretionary. That's important. But in terms of the revenue, they're expecting, you know, kind of $3.86 trillion in revenue. 50% of that is expected to come from income tax. 36% is expected to come from Social Security, Medicare, and payroll taxes, 7% from corporate taxes, 4% from excise taxes and tariffs, and the final 2% is earnings from the Federal Reserve's portfolio. So that's kind of the expectation. Basically, half that money is expected to be paid for by taxes, income taxes, and then you know most of the remainder by Social Security, Medicare, and payroll taxes, and then you know, a little of this, a little bit of that. On the spending side, the mandatory programs are expected to cost about $3 trillion. So that's kind of $3 trillion of the $3.86, $3.9 trillion. So the mandatory spending includes things like Social Security, Medicare, and unemployment. Um, also includes things like Medicaid. So Social Security is the biggest of those programs, um, which is $1.15 trillion. Then you get down to the discretionary spending. So all that stuff is kind of set in stone. I actually can't comment because I don't know on what it would take to change those things from mandatory to discretionary, but take it for granted that no politician is really running on seriously changing those programs. So you got about $3.9 trillion expected to come in through taxes and, and kind of other things around 2.9 trillion expected to go out because that's something you have to pay now the discretionary budget is about one and a half trillion dollars this is the interesting part for me now all of this is interesting because it's knowledge and it's important to understand how this money gets appropriated <laughs> so 1.5 trillion dollar discretionary budget more than half goes towards military spending, including Homeland Security, the Department of Veterans Affairs, and other defense-related departments. The rest of all the discretionary spending must pay for all other domestic programs, including health and human services, education, and housing and urban development. So you're probably asking, that all seems to add up to a negative number. It does. Uh, the budget <laughs> deficit is estimated at around a trillion dollars. There's plenty of reasons that our friend uh, J.M. Keynes would tell you that the, the deficit is a little bit less scary than it sounds. But this is the really interesting thing. When you do the math, you've got this pool of money 
that, you know, kind of is what it is. You just assume this pool of money. Now we can talk about the Laffer curve and what's the appropriate way to set those taxes to maximize that. You have mandatory spending that takes up the vast majority of the money you have to spend. And then within this discretionary bucket, the stuff that kind of can change, the overwhelming majority of that is military spending. So this is no, there's no particular comment here so much as facts. And it's important to think about what is the money that, that we're all, what are we all paying for? Where does it go? And how much is left for other things we think might be useful? Yeah, I think this dovetails like pretty, it's, it's, I kind of, I guess it's not really a smaller scale. Like, like, I'm, uh, I guess like a, a def- another way to think about this is like the whole thing we talked about with Alex, like how do we reallocate police budgets? It's kind of a similar thing. Yep. It, it's exactly right. It's just, I think for me, it's, it's sort of empowering to understand how this works because you can kind of see where there's wiggle room and where there's not wiggle room. And frankly, as you look at that, there's really only one place for short to medium term wiggle room and it's defense spending versus other. That's really the only spot. Well, what's also interesting is like what's, what's included in that defense budget because um, I'm reading a book right now and I think like a, a large percentage of our military spending is actually border security. So like not mm-hmm. what you would think of when you think of military spending. They roll up, I think, to the Department of Homeland Security. Is that right? Yeah, I believe yeah, so. Yeah, so that was a big part of that budget I just quoted. Like $228 billion is for things that include Homeland Security, State Department, and Veterans Affairs. That's an yeah. awful lot of money. And if you ask anybody who receives their health care from the VA... I think they'll tell you that that money is not going overwhelmingly to them. And my grandfather, um, who is you know retired from the military, he does not receive top-notch care from the VA. I don't think his case is anomalous either. Okay, so number two, this is one. So this is a concept. Uh, it's it's highly politicized um, and really tough to sort out. And that's the point. This is the the point of this topic is I'm going to read you a passage about the minimum wage from an actual Congressional Budget Office memo about various options for the minimum wage, for the federal minimum wage. Okay, so the minimum wage. The concept is you put in a floor for how little somebody can make. Now, the the case for is that the current minimum wage is below a subsistence wage in the United States. That if you make the minimum wage... You can't actually live in the United States without some sort of outside assistance. I think that is pretty much indisputably a fact. But just kind of start there with that's the case for a minimum wage is it will force employers to pay people more money, meaning more people live above the poverty line. The case against is, okay, if you raise the minimum wage, then that will decrease hiring and it will cause employers basically, you know, yeah, we'll pay the people we hire that higher wage, but we'll fire people. And then you'll have more people who are on government assistance. Case for, case against. They are both actually, in in my opinion, they're both kind of principled, reasonable cases. In the Congressional Budget Office, which is a nonpartisan group that kind of advises... No, no, it's actually worse than you think because it's not... um, (laughs) They're not advocating for something. So the Congressional Budget Office is like a nonpartisan group that... um, you know, when there's going to be a tax cut, for example, they would estimate what they imp- that they expect the impact on tax revenue to be. Um, they're historically kind of taken as a really good 
source on those things and they they uh, consult Congress on those things. So this is what they wrote on this memo about the minimum wage. There is considerable uncertainty. This is a congressional memo to Congress. There is considerable uncertainty about the responsiveness of employment to an increase in the minimum wage, meaning how quickly they fire people. If employment is more responsive than the Congressional Budget Office expects, then increases in the minimum wage would lead to larger declines in employment. By contrast, if employment is less responsive than the Congressional Budget Office expects, the declines will be smaller. Findings in the research literature about how changes in the federal minimum wage affect employment vary widely. Many studies have found little or no effect, but many others have found substantial reductions in employment. End of story. <laughs> so, so they basically, who knows? So they basically, so this is this is considered sort of um, our government's highest and best source. And this is not a critique of them. I, I'm actually not criticizing the Congressional Budget Office because they're a really important part of our government. They are talking about this topic that is incredibly important and probably one of the real headlines of economic policy for most people. Like your average person engaging with economic policy this is one of the few that they really think about and they're saying after this memo about like their projections for what would happen who knows well it speaks to the the how complicated it actually is yes Uh, yeah and that's why i wanted i was actually planning to end on this i want to end on something else um because it really struck me but i was initially planning to end on this point because i think as you go through all of these topics and you think about what appropriate policies are at various levels, it's important to be humble and acknowledge that it's there's some unknowability to a lot of this stuff and that attacking these problems in good faith. Um, and of course, again, good faith varies kind of depending on who you are, but attacking these problems in good faith and kind of really trying to engage them is the important thing because even the Congressional Budget Office admits that on a topic as important as minimum wage, they kind of don't know. Yeah, that's good to keep in mind. Yeah. All right, the last thing I want to talk about, it, and this is actually, you're going to laugh because it probably seems like the least important thing um, on this list, but I actually found it to be incredibly important. It really struck me. The last thing I want to talk about is sick days. So as I was doing some research um, for this podcast, I was you know just trying to Google around, like, what are some hot button topics that people are interested in? And... I found this Bureau of Labor Statistics. So again, you know, this is a government entity, nonpartisan, um, a study talking about sick days. This study is staggering to me, staggering. Among private sector employees, so people employed not by the government, people employed in the private sector, among the top 10% of earners, 87% have paid sick days. Now, that sounds <laughs> eminently reasonable to me. Okay. I, I guess my question to you is, I'm, I'm, I'm sure this includes, like, a scenario where you don't have, like, sick days specifically classified. Like, where I used to work, you just have, like, a bucket of personal time. And, I would imagine I would that, that you would be bucketed as having sick days. Yeah. okay. Um. There's, but the the point is, if this, it's however they classify this, they're not, they don't have a bent. They're not trying to bucket people as one or the other. This is the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Yeah. Do they have paid sick days? 
87% of the top 10% of earners. The bottom 10%, 27% have paid sick days. So what that means is if you're in the bottom 10% of private sector earners, there is only a 27% chance that you have paid sick days. How is that possible? That's so utterly stunning to me. Well, I mean, like, like literally, like, isn't it a, isn't it, is it, maybe it's not. Maybe I just have this boundless assumption nope. that, you, that you have to provide your employees sick I had, I had thought the same thing. No, you do not. Well, that's, that, well, that's stunning. It's like the, it's like the rich, richer thing, right? Like if you're <laughs> earning in the top 10% in the private sector, there's a very good chance that you're not using, like you're. Okay, so exactly. So there's a couple things I want to kind of unpack here, but please chase this one down. Well, it's just, you know, like if you're making in the bottom 10% of the private sector, like statistically, you're far more likely to live in conditions that mean you're probably sick more often and you're like... (laughs) Or have kids who are sick. Yep, exactly. Yeah, this also includes like family leave and stuff. Yeah, and, and you don't have, like you have fewer resources to have someone else look after your kids or you have fewer, like, less inability to work from home rather than take a sick day. And like those very same people are the ones that are least likely to have paid sick leave, which is like, it stratifies like, and it's compounding like a lot of the stuff we've been talking about. So this, this exact point you're making is, is huge. Second, I want to talk about this, the concept that they use, the term they were using uh, in the article talking about the study was called presenteeism rather than absenteeism. And I want to kind of present a hypothetical here. So we're in the midst of a global pandemic right now. Now, putting this aside, because I'm, I would imagine, again, like you, maybe baselessly, I would imagine that a lot of um, employers have kind of implemented some sort of COVID-related policies. But just imagine on a smaller scale, some sort of infectious disease kind of making its way through a particular area and not on enough scale to garner national attention. When you have people showing up when they ought not to show up, you yeah. have major issues with the spread of that disease. And in even if it's not formalized in policy terms, that has been a major issue with this pandemic because yeah. disproportionately people who are already earning a lot of money have been able to work remotely and not been forced into dangerous conditions. And that's been a major reason why the pandemic has disproportionately affected communities of color. I think like a really good point to kind of like finish on is that like none of these things happen in isolation. Like they all exist together. And so like your wealth gap, like it like might affect you in like a very specific way, but it also has implications for all these other things and they all work in tandem. It's like, if you've heard the term intersectionality, like when talking about like different kinds of, uh, you know, movements, like you can't, you can't address them in isolation, but like you can't address sexism and say like, well, we're done here because like, you know, you can't do that in isolation from, you know, gay rights or racial rights or whatever. But the point is like the same idea translates to this whole like branch of economics that we're talking about. And actually all the, all those in total intersect, like <laughs> none of these things operate in a vacuum. And so like, and this is, that is exactly the note I wanted to end on. Cause what the note I wrote to myself for this is that the headlines don't matter. Headlines are headlines. And the headline things people talk about are wage growth, inflation, um, you know, the minimum wage. This is not a headline. This is a well, well below the fold topic that has major impacts. And there are unintended consequences or intended in some cases 
of policies that are really far reaching. Um, and you can't talk about sick days without talking about the economy. And you can't talk about the economy without addressing that. About a quarter of these low earners have sick days. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah, it, it, it's stunning. The problem with this is that like, this requires like a lot of work, like to even like be like able to talk about a couple of these things intelligently, like really requires you to go out of your way because like no one is going to tell you this stuff. Yeah. And that's, I think that's like part of the, the issue is that like some of this stuff isn't visible and it's not well known or it's not something that's talked about or like <laughs> go a step further. It's not taught like formally in any, at any stage of your educational career. Like no. it's difficult. I mentioned to you, I listened to uh, DeRay McKesson um, talking on the Bill Simmons podcast, and part of what he was talking about was pushing back against the notion that all these problems are too big to change. And he's a realist. He admits that there's a lot of things that are going to take a long time, but there's a lot of things that happen at kind of the, the micro level that can change things at the macro level. And that's kind of part, that's another reason why I wanted to end on the sick days thing is there are things that can change radically that don't require huge kind of social movements or like massive buy-in of a change in the way we think about things. Most, if not all, reasonable adults can agree people need sick days. That's something that can change. We can change that with minimal effort. That needs to change. But that topic specifically, like it, it, it speaks to how difficult this is though, because the counter the counterpoint to that is that like by forcing like these like these people that you know work in the lower 10% they're working in industries where to force an employer to provision those things really inhibits their ability to run a business and so like you, you run into that counterpoint and then it's like okay well maybe maybe this is something that we should be spending our money on to subsidize and allow to happen and then you run into all sorts of problems where okay this is a handout this is and like i'm not saying for or against i'm just saying that like yeah in a vacuum these things seem simple to address and then when you dig into it there's so many different like sides to it it's 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 understandable why these things get mired down and why you know it's tough to enact change in these ways but well thanks for bringing us down kyle well <laughs> <laughs> sorry yeah i just you were trying to finish on a on a positive note, and I was like, counterpoint to that. <laughs> so. Spitballing off of that fight club. <laughs> All right, well, you and I both have to get the hell out of here. We do. I will say, if you're interested in what we've been talking about, like we've referenced a couple of things here today, but my biggest recommendation is that book that I already previously mentioned, The Color of Law. It's like probably by far the best thing I've read this year, and it really yeah. like puts a lot of these things into clear and like specific terms that are really helpful. Yep. Um, do you want to recap or do you just want to finish this up? No, let's finish this up. All right. Well, usually at this point in the show, I thank Kevin McLeod. We didn't use his not top three music today, but he did still do the intro. Man, that was stanky. That was stanky. Usually after I thank Kevin, I thank my sister Erin for uh, provisioning us with artwork, which I do so love. Um, and if you want to see more of Erin's st stylings, Instagram is the place to do that at Sant Design. And I want to shout out our social media director, Caroline Labranti, my fiance. Uh, you can find her personal stuff at cml.photos. She's blowing up these days. She's got like people asking her to photograph weddings. So, oh yeah, 
Keep it rolling. I am financially interested in this. Check her stuff out. It's going to get me a pair of shoes. Uh, so please do that. But check out what she does for our podcast on Top10KM on Instagram, 10 spelled out T-E-N. Uh, you can also check us out on Facebook at that same kind of handle. Uh, and if you want to send us an email to tell us we were wrong about everything, uh, please rebut us, join us, teach us, whatever, uh, or talk about, like, you know, slime time on Nickelodeon, whatever you want to talk about. You shoot us an email, top10km at gmail.com, 10 spelled out T-E-N. And finally, before we go, I'm sure you're listening to us on some sort of podcast app, but if you're looking for another one, you can check us out on Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, pretty much wherever podcasts can be found. So, my friend, that's all I got to say. Wonderful work, Michael. That was a really good list. Thank you for putting the effort into that. All right. Thank you, sir. Talk again. Yes. Peace.